Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode is all about the wonderful and interesting ways that people find to make a living in these weird economic times. So whether you hate your boss or you love your boss, maybe there's some ideas in here that you could make use of in your five to nine, as the kids say. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. Well, The Guardian is updating us and letting us know that the Italian king of absentees allegedly skipped work for 15 years. I mean, it's a good gig if you can get it. Like, how do they not catch you? <laughs> I know. Anti-hero goals, right? Yeah. And he was a hospital employee in the Calabrian city of Catanzaro, and he continued to be paid a monthly salary, all in all, earning about 645000 U.S. dollars. You know, yeah. no big deal. Not bad. <laughs> He broke the national record by leg- allegedly <laughs> skipping work for 15 years. I like the fact that there was a record to break. Like, they're I keeping know. track of this, and they're like, we know who the guy is, but no, he's not the guy anymore. Now this guy's the guy. I know. I wonder if Greece is looking at this and being like, hmm, should we have, like, an EU record, or is right. this just the Italy record? But regardless, he is now 67 and is finally facing charges of abuse of office, mm-hmm. forgery, and... And aggravated extortion. And not only him, but six managers are also being investigated on suspicion of having played a role in enabling his alleged absenteeism, which is apparently super rife in Italy's public sector. (laughs) So like he was giving him a cut and they were acting like he had been there or something. Perhaps. Um, In an investigation codenamed Part Time, police (laughs) gathered their evidence from attendance and salary records, as well as witness statements from colleagues. So in 2016, the government tightened a law against the work shy after several high profile police investigations revealed just how rampant absenteeism was across the public sector. Mm. And in one investigation, police even used secret surveillance cameras to ensnare 35 workers at San Remo's town hall who had been cheating the time management system for about two years. Wow. The wives of two of the employees were caught using their husband's staff cards to clock on for them while other staff members clocked on before before going canoeing or shopping or even uh, just out with friends. Wow. <laughs> there was also another case unrelated where a police officer was filmed clocking on for work in his underwear because oh. he lived in the same building he worked in. And <laughs> amazingly, he was acquitted of accusations of fraud last year. So, so like you uh, were there, you were just in your underwear. That's fine. <laughs> that's, <laughs> he may have been undercover in his underpants, but, you know, if a police officer could get off with this, it seems like the application of justice is somewhat mixed but when is it not (laughs) that's right (laughs) next link next Next link link. so we all have been using uber eats and uh grubhub all of various apps delivering food to us recently but the food delivery apps are having a specifically hard time getting into india 
this article from the BBC is talking about how there is an existing network of food delivery people. They have been running for 125 years. And they're an incredibly well-run system. They're basically considered one of the world's most efficient logistics systems. They're called Dabawalas, which means literally one who carries the box. The box is a Daba. And they're Mm. just a 5,000-member cooperative where they deliver home-cooked meals from your house to your place of business. That's sort of their specialty. They really don't do restaurants. They don't necessarily deliver a home-cooked meal from your house. There's sort of a separate network of you could get someone else to make you a home-cooked meal. But fundamentally, they're going from the residential areas on the trains into Mumbai, where most of their customers are. And they've actually been studied by a lot of people because they run so well. Harvard Business School rated the Dabawala network as Six Sigma, which means fewer than 3.4 mistakes per 1 million transactions. Wow. And mistakes in this case means not just missing or screwed up orders, but delayed orders. If your order is five minutes late, that's considered a problem. And the Dabawalas have like this huge, huge pride in the timeliness and the efficiency of their system. And every time some shiny app or some company tries to come in and replicate it, they find that they just can't. They deliver hot lunches to 200,000 workers every day, and the service costs the equivalent of roughly $10 a month. So What? Yeah, yeah and wow. that's not the food, because, of course, the food is coming from your house. But for $10 a month, you can have somebody deliver a meal to you every day of the week. Huh. The job commands respect. Like, people know their neighborhood Dabawala. They have a relationship traffic and police give way. If a Dabawala is coming through, you know them because they're carrying their giant shoulder packs of all these lunchboxes. Everybody kind of waves them ahead like you would with an ambulance. Mm. And it goes both ways. Being late for the Dabawala is practically a sin. But if the customer's meal isn't ready for pickup when the Dabawala arrives for maybe two or three times, the customer gets booted. They say, you're not you're not participating in this communal system the way that you're supposed to be. And you're affecting everybody. And they have a very communal understanding. Most of the people who work as Dabawalas come from a particular set of Hinduism that worships Vithala. And Vithala's thing is he teaches that giving food to the hungry is a great virtue. And so one of the Dabawalas was interviewed. He was quoted as saying, we are getting a golden chance to walk the path of spirituality while earning our bread. Wow. It's an amazing system. They've been studied, of course, to see how do they do it? How do they keep it organized? You know, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. so many meals and so many people. They say one Dabawala runs about maybe 20 or 30 pickup spots in their assigned neighborhood. And then it all goes to a central location. They've got a really complex coding system that says what train it needs to go on, what neighborhood in Mumbai and which office building and which floor. They say the Dabawalas earn a little over $140 a month which is not great, but for unskilled labor in India that only has to work half the day, that's actually really good. They, uh, mm-hmm. they do well. Yeah. And now that companies are starting to come in and sort of examine how they work, some of them are supplementing in the afternoons with deliveries from like FedEx and other types of companies, as long as it doesn't interfere with their food delivery, which they consider sort of a moral duty. They're not ever going to give that up. Mm-hmm. One of the other things they noted was that their management is strictly two-tier. They have the workers and they have one layer of supervisors and the supervisors are democratically elected from the teams that they supervise. So that makes a great deal of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just this really loving community that really they sort of feel like they said, like a religious duty to their job and the people respect them. And they're more than just, you know, a quick app with clicking the money Mm -hmm. in. Like that's one of the other things that one of the advantages they have is even though Google Maps now has all of these neighborhoods in India fully mapped. They're really not great about understanding where the traffic bottlenecks are. And, of course, the Dabawalas know that, you know, Mm -hmm. inside and out. So anytime someone tries to bring in technology, they're like, we don't need that. 
We know it already. We are good at our jobs. Leave us alone. So yeah, that reminds me of sort of when Uber was coming around in the UK. The UK has this elaborate system for taxi drivers who have to know the entire city mm. intimately mm-hmm. and has this insane test, which makes the requirements in the bar to get in much higher. But at least for something like this, you know, people are very touchy about their food with good reason. Right, right. So it's not like you can just come in with a slightly below par service and then everybody will just accept it. Right. Once you've established this baseline expectation of people, you're not going to be able to try and disrupt the environment because people are generally happy with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What a dream that sounds like. I would love to learn more about importing that model, but I guess you have to also have buy off on like built in social goods, social pact operations in order to (laughs) make it happen. And And that's one of the things that people like there was a guy quoted the article who did his PhD on the Dabawala network, like just as examining them as a business. And one of the things they note is the same reasons that the apps are having a hard time getting into India. This system would be very hard to implement anywhere else because you don't have that cultural buy in. First of all, yeah. you don't have a culture mm-hmm. that says, yes, of course my, you know, working person is getting a home-cooked meal. You don't have people sitting at home going, yeah, my job is to cook all day for these people. So, mm. you know, that's a sacrifice that you have to trade off to have a system like this where you're delivering home-cooked meals to people. But at the mm. same time, you have a, a personal relationship with somebody. These apps don't prioritize personal relationships. Right. It would be impossible mm-hmm. to no. have a personal relationship with your Uber Eats driver. You know. Yeah, it's designed to be disposable and a la carte. Right. But I wonder if a system like that would become a little bit more appealing, especially as people are really not going out to eat or getting delivery, but the delivery experience is kind of hit or miss right now. Like if you could mm-hmm. have reliable delivery of fully prepared meals with a menu that you're used to, that you know that you're going to like, and that you can really, I, I see there's potential of it kind and of happening here, even if it were more of a grassroots kind of thing. I think there's opportunities also for improvements on the side of the service workers who are delivering and who are picking up and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. My recent experiences with DoorDash specifically have been not super great. Right. Uh, and other just delivery drivers in general will try and get into my apartment complex and give up essentially oh, if they don't just get walk into away? the gate right away sometimes that'll happen yeah oh. and i can only personally assume that that is due to untenable scaling problems and mm-hmm. stressors that are on these drivers from yeah. all the demand that is not localizing it just goes everywhere so yeah. i think a local network and something that has those sort of relationships and redundancy built in makes a ton of sense as a business model overall but yeah as we know Uber Eats and DoorDash are not seeking sustainability, so. Right, no, right. No. They're they're hot and getting the money and getting out. <laughs> yep, yep, <laughs> yep. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, well, believe it or not, it is December. I know that feels very weird to uh, say, but it's true. Which ooh. means <sighs> the holidays are coming up. And The uh, Hustle has a really interesting article on the economics of Christmas trees. So do you guys put up a Christmas tree? Do you do a real one, a fake one? What do you do? Yeah, I do a fake one. It varies. Uh, (laughs) It just kind of depends on our mood, I guess. I don't know. Christmas is weird in my family. Yeah. (laughs) I get the feeling that we're about to hear about which is going to be a better investment and more economically feasible and possibly more ecologically feasible. The real versus fake. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely part of it. They focus mostly on the real trees and uh, Christmas tree farms sell 25 to 30 million real trees per year. There are about 15,000 tree farms in the U.S., ranging everywhere from 9,000 acres all the way down to just two acres. There's some guy out there who's growing like six trees, I guess. 
And <laughs> the market is very stratified. So of those 15,000 farms, 75% of all business is done by the top 434 farms. Mm-hmm. At any given time, there are around 350 million Christmas trees growing specifically for that purpose, partly because they're a long-term investment. A tree takes about eight to 10 years to reach six feet tall, which is kind of the minimum as far as consumers are concerned. Mm -hmm. Two thirds of the trees come from just four states, Oregon, North Carolina, Michigan and Pennsylvania. In Oregon, trees, not all trees, but just Christmas farm trees outnumber people 12 to one. So, I mean, it's a big industry where it's an industry. There are not any growing in Texas, I'm pretty sure. But (laughs) but where they grow them, they grow a lot of them. So a Christmas tree begins its life as a seedling which is typically purchased from a timber farm for between 50 cents and a dollar. It spends the first two years of its life in a series of expanding planters before finally growing large enough to be given a plot of land out in the field. Most Christmas tree farmers try to fit about 1,200 trees per acre. So these are obviously exactly what you'd imagine. They're very dense. They're in neat little rows. But Mm -hmm. you can't just set it and forget it. Throughout its 10 years, this tree must be tended, fertilized, and trimmed in order to grow into a perfect lush Christmas tree, at which point... The $75 price tag starts looking a little more reasonable, you know, when you think about the amount of labor that goes into growing this thing. And that is especially true from the farmer's perspective, because the reality is most profits are taken by the retailers. Wholesale trees go for around $35 each. So farmers make an average profit of only about $8 to $10 per tree. The way they remain profitable is they make up for it in volume. So a retailer like Home Depot might order 250,000 trees for a single season. So for the big farms, you're still looking at an annual profit of over $2 million. Wow. And the big farms, they have their process down tight. So the uh, author of this article went and kind of visited and watched what was happening right now as they harvest them. At, for example, holiday tree farms, during the harvest season, owner Mark Arkills uses seven helicopters running continuously from sunrise to sunset loading about a 1,000 cut trees per hour into tractor trailers. Holy cow. For a total of a million harvested trees in just 30 days. So it's, oh my it's a busy month. Nonetheless, as you noted, their industry is in peril from the inexorable rise of their nemesis, the artificial Christmas tree. <laughs> Today, yeah. of the 96 million Christmas trees in American homes, about 81% are fake. Oh, a wow. much higher number than I was thinking, yeah. The numbers can be a little misleading because, of course, people reuse their fake Christmas trees. And Mm -hmm. some of the customers who buy fake trees are people who would never have dealt with the hassle of a real tree if it was their only choice. So they're not necessarily taking buyers away from the real Christmas tree farms. Mm. But Mm. from an annual sales perspective, both real trees and fake trees sell around 25 million new units each year. So that represents a huge spike in sales for the fake trees, while sales of real trees have been stagnant for about the last two decades. The economic supply chain for fake trees is, of course, entirely different. While a real tree takes 8 to 10 years to grow, a fake one can be made in a factory in less than five minutes. Wow. And about 85% of all fake trees come from a single province in China called Yiwu, which is often nicknamed Santa's real workshop. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The province of Yiwu contains over 600 Christmas tree factories, where workers twine the green polyvinyl chloride onto metal poles in 12-hour shifts for the equivalent of about $600 per month. Yeah, it's not great. And at full steam, a factory in Yiwu can churn out 1,500 trees every two days. And they can do it year-round. They don't have to wait for a harvest season. So, Boy, you know, this really kind of makes me think about, like, the movie Elf. 
but like the Chinese factory version of right, it. Right. The really depressing version of Elf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, tree farms may have found their Christmas miracle. In recent years, the U-cut movement has been growing in popularity where traveling to the farm and cutting down your own tree becomes sort of part of the experience. Oh, yeah. Last year, a full third of real tree sales were you cut it yourself. And that means the farm gets to keep all the profits because they're still charging the same price, meaning instead of $10 per tree, they make about $50 per tree that way. So as long as they can keep convincing people that it's fun to do manual labor... They can easily stay in business. Well, look, if we can grow chicken tissue in any kind of format, who's to say we don't have a chicken meat Christmas tree happening in 30 years? That's very true. I'm sorry. I hope any listener is not actually eating right now. I'm just like, is the tree breaded? I'm just imagining it trembling right now. Like, I know uh... they make edible glitter. And so if you could bread it with glitter and then like instead of tinsel, you're using condiments. Look, the sky's the limit, guys. We're yeah, it's, just, it's a nascent to- industry. Let's go. Tomato ornaments. Yeah. When you take a bite yeah. out of it, it gives a little squawk. Like, <laughs> 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 or it plays a Christmas song. Yeah. <laughs> we can. It's genetics. We can make it do anything we want, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay, this article comes to us from the BBC, and it is titled, The Millions Being Made from Cardboard Theft. So getting all your cardboard recycled may often seem like a pain, but there's a ton of money to be made from all of this so-called beige gold. (laughs) (laughs) And this is attracting criminals from around the world. What? So apparently they're making just a fortune from stealing used cardboard that's been left out to be recycled and just selling it on. This also means that legitimate recycling firms and the city and other local authorities who take a cut from the sales are missing out on tens of millions of dollars. Wait, what is recycled so, old janky cardboard even good for? Who's who's paying a premium for that? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's <laughs> mostly for just, you know, getting recycled into eco-green things. A lot of it is going to Southeast Asia, China, other places like that. It's just getting sold on to whoever would use it. And essentially, with anything that you steal, you sell it at a cheaper price. So that's probably a big part of the reason Mm. as well. Mm -hmm. But also with the recent shortages with COVID, there's been a huge increase in cost of the cardboard as well. So that's also pumped up crime quite a bit. So the BBC interviewed a shopkeeper in the bustling Chamartin district of central Madrid. And they said, to be honest, most of us don't care who takes it away as long as it goes. And Mm -hmm. behind him stand two of the Spanish capital's well-known municipal recycling bins, which until February of this year had been raided daily by one of the city's numerous recycled cardboard trafficking gangs. (laughs) So a few miles away at the headquarters of the Nature Protection Service, or Ciprona, of the Spanish Guardia Civil Police Force, is a map of Madrid covered in a bunch of different colored dots. And 18 colors mark out 18 different routes used by the various gangs. Hmm. So Ciprona was brought in to help tackle the problem in 2018 after the Madrid City's police force 
was unable to solve the issue with its policy of fining anyone caught stealing used <laughs> cardboard. Mm-hmm. So back in February, the Saprona-led Operation Hardy, which is the Romanian word for paper, leapt into action and 42 suspected cardboard gang members were arrested on suspicion <laughs> of environmental offenses and money laundering. Okay, right, cardboard right. gang members? Hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> the numbers, though, get pretty big. They're accused of stealing and shipping more than 67,000 tons of waste a year per year yeah since 2015 at an average value of 10 million euros per year that's crazy yeah see i have to appreciate like organized crime is bad but i can appreciate when they are truly organized like it feels like they just (laughs) they've created a competitive recycling service and frankly it sounds like they're doing a better more efficient job at it i don't know I feel like let them have it. Like, you know, praise good project <laughs> management where you find it in the wild, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they are our most industrious citizens in the end. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, in this case that's been delayed by the coronavirus pandemic, the trial is due to take place later this year. The police have photos of some of the men crawling in and out of these recycling bins. So, like, they're really just getting down and dirty with it. Mm-hmm. The photographic evidence came despite the Madrid Council deliberately introducing dumpsters with smaller holes in 2016. And the shopkeeper they interviewed joked, perhaps the thieves just got thinner. (laughs) So while figures aren't available for how much recycled cardboard is stolen globally, experts do say it's very much a worldwide problem and there are vast amounts of money to be made. Hmm. The annual value of the legitimate trade in recycled cardboard and other papers is expected to climb to $5.4 billion by 2020. 24 up from 4.3 billion in 2017 and it's not that surprising when you consider the continuing rise in online shopping and the fact that most consumer goods are delivered to you in cardboard boxes that are made from recycled fiber and this is said to be 93 percent recycled for boxes in europe so i didn't actually realize that they use that much recycled cardboard right you know who knows what cardboard you're looking at is recycled or isn't really hmm Over the past decade, used cardboard has mostly been sent to China to be pulped and turned into the new boxes that its vast export sector requires, and it's made some Chinese people very rich, such as the billionaire Zhang Yin, also called the Queen of Trash, whose firm (laughs) specializes in importing cardboard from the U.S. Mm. Yeah, so like any commodity, the price of recycled cardboard ebbs and flows, according to demand. But at the start of coronavirus, it spiked to 130 pounds, and getting hold of cardboard was a bit name your price at the time. And historically, it's even been higher at 200 pounds a ton 10 years ago. Wow. Now it's only sitting around 70 to 80 as demand has decreased relative to the coronavirus situation. But it's per ton. So like your average homeowner couldn't like save up all their cardboard boxes for a few months and then make any money off of it. You're still talking about huge quantities. Yeah. 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 I'm just thinking, you know, maybe I want to sell it myself. I have a lot of Amazon deliveries. I want (laughs) to get in on it. Yeah. We just need to group together, guys. Although on the flip side, if you wanted to, you could buy an entire ton of of cardboard for only 80 euros and then you could sell it to your friends and family secondhand. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know. So- something, something, triangle, mid-level marketing scheme. Right, you right. Know. This sounds like it's only a problem in certain areas because I happen to know for a fact, and don't ask me why I know this, but in Austin at least, and I think the state of Texas as a whole, once something is in the garbage or recycling bin, it is 100% fair game. 
It's not considered stealing if you take something out of a dumpster in Austin, Texas. I know that. But <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's great for the Freegans out that's here. That's right. Exactly. And that's why we, probably why we have it is because there's people who have lobbied for that sort of progressive lawmaking here. <laughs> well, I think that's lovely, even though I probably wouldn't engage in it myself. I'm glad I have the right. That's right. It's recycling. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's the case in Europe because apparently right. this phenomenon is very wide and right. it's crossed from just paper theft to money laundering and fraud with international and local networks interacting. And several media outlets have actually reported on the problem in the US, which has been prevalent in New York and California, uh, where I assume the law may be different. Right. And <laughs> when asked if the problem exists in the UK, Mark Hall from the recycling firm businesswaste.co.uk says he wouldn't be surprised and that the problem is that it's so untraceable since it's not like cardboard has a tracker on it. Mm -hmm. And also theft is hardly ever reported by companies because why would they? If magic pixies have nicked their waste cardboard, <laughs> that means they don't have to pay a firm <laughs> like his to come yeah. and pick it up. So they're going to keep quiet. Yeah, absolutely. So the Recycling Association, Simon Ellen, adds that the criminals are also likely to be unaffected by the big structural change that's due to take place in the cardboard recycling industry at the end of the year, which is China banning all imports as part of the government's effort to develop its own internal recycling sector. Mm -hmm. And he says that the legitimate global recycling industry is now sending its cardboard to countries such as Turkey, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand instead. So these criminals will just divert their cargo containers of stolen cardboard to those nations as well. All right. Uh, I guess the search for them continues. <laughs> yeah, there's a market out there. You're not going to stop them. Yeah. You never know when you're going to find a unexpectedly lucrative business opportunity. <laughs> right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article is from Discover Magazine, and it's called The Psychology of Why Consumer Rewards Programs Suck You In. Ooh. Obviously, the main underlying concept is pretty obvious to anyone. Stores want to encourage you to come back and shop again, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it turns out there's been a lot of psychological research on human motivation, and there are some very detailed reasons for why certain consumer reward programs are structured the way they are. So one of the main differentiators in rewards programs has to do with how easy it is to switch to a competitor. Like when you're buying gas, for example, it's extremely easy to just pick a different parking lot to pull into. And so gas retailers want to focus on developing habitual behaviors, which means gas station rewards are almost always something small that you're guaranteed to get every time you come in. Credit cards, on the other hand, are more of a pain to switch. So those companies are more likely to offer a really big incentive up front that gets you to commit to the account. And then they'll pull back or even completely eliminate the reward a few months in on the expectation that you won't jump through all those hoops to close the account. Mm. Another behavior that's been well-documented in both humans and animals is that the closer we get to a goal, the harder or faster we work. And one study in 2006 showed that in a standard punch card promotion where, like, you buy 10 coffees and the 11th is free, mm -hmm. the time it took for the customer to come back in between each punch became shorter and shorter as they got closer to 10. Yeah, because you got to collect them all. You're almost done. That's right. You're almost to your free coffee. Mm -hmm. But so then the researchers took it a step farther, giving some customers a standard 10 punch card 
and giving others a 12-punch card with the first two punches already done. Mm. And customers who got the card with the first two already completed filled out their cards in less than 13 days on average, while those who started with an empty 10-punch card took 16 days. Whoa. And that one honestly got me because I have a little punch card from this boba tea place that I go to all the time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, the checkout lady will just give me an extra stamp for free. And <gasps> she acts like it's because I'm a regular customer and she likes me or whatever. But I've realized now, like, no, she's <laughs> Suckering me in. She's doing it to everybody. Oh. Yeah, and it's not like it costs anything because it they just give you another punch card and you're on the hook again. Right. You know? Yeah. And yeah. I'm coming back sooner. So ultimately they're mm-hmm. getting more money out of me because I'm buying more boba tea just for the stupid punches. Yeah. Right. Because but. like if you get if it's buy ten, get one free, then like as a percentage, you know, it's what, ten percent off? Yeah, exactly. So they've also done studies on the social status of certain rewards programs where if they put the rewards into membership tiers, you're more likely to strive for platinum status or whatever because it makes you feel special even if the reward itself is minimal. Mm -hmm. And more counterintuitively, membership tiers are a case where they actually do want to restrict how many people they let in because Mm. they want to keep that sheen of exclusivity. So what they do is they allow that small handful of platinum members to share their rewards with anyone they want. Kind of how a gym will let you bring in a guest or AAA will come Mm -hmm. to any car you're stranded in, not just your Mm -hmm. own. So, I mean, ultimately, it ends up functioning like a buy one, get one free deal, where mathematically, it really just means everything in the store is half price, but you Mm -hmm. have to buy two to get the deal. And in Mm -hmm. this case, you as the Platinum member are actually paying for all those people who are using the service for free, but you do it willingly because it feels like a fancy exclusive deal and you get that social capital of being the helpful friend and everyone seeing that you're a platinum member who can, you know, give them cool things. <laughs> and just in case all that weren't depressing enough, studies have also shown that dollar for dollar, almost all rewards programs end up being identical. They each kind of frame it in different ways. But at the end of the day, the market will bear what it will bear. And there's a maximum discount that any place can afford to offer. So no deal, no matter how good it sounds, is really any better than you're going to get anywhere else. Which, you know, on the one hand, yeah, duh. But on the other hand, dang it. Like, they got me. (laughs) I like to think of myself as a savvy consumer. But the lady at the boba tea place, man, she got me and I didn't know she was getting me. So (laughs) now I'm angry and I want to say, like, I won't go get boba tea anymore, but I will. I totally will. Exactly. I mean, you totally need some boba to cool down. I know, right? That's the only (laughs) thing that can comfort me. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, I have a weird, quirky one here at the end. This is from Spencer Soper at Bloomberg. The title is Amazon drivers are hanging smartphones in trees to get more work. So there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there. And basically, it all comes down to the gig economy. Right. We have these delivery mechanisms now where a gig driver will get a notification on their phone saying, hey, we've got a delivery in your area. Do you want to accept it? Yes. You go. You pick up the package. You go drop it off. But because of COVID-19, there's a big influx in people trying to be delivery drivers because there's been a lot of loss of business faced by Uber and Lyft drivers. You're not taking Mm -hmm. people anymore. So now there's a flood of people all trying to take these relatively limited number of food deliveries and grocery deliveries and things like that. And apparently, I didn't realize this, Amazon actually has something called Amazon Flex, which is a similar thing where basically instead of putting it on a big truck and making a whole bunch of Amazon deliveries, there's occasional little instant delivery things that Mm -hmm. they contract out to individual drivers one at a time. The courier business. (laughs) Right, exactly. But because of the huge number of people who are trying to get in on this now, the competition's really fierce. And you end up with quite a few drivers literally just sitting in the parking lot of these places waiting for jobs. But 
the algorithm of this app goes to the closest cars first, assuming, oh, well, there's probably only one or two people in the area, not understanding that there's 30 people sitting in the parking lot. Right. And cell towers these days can determine your location to within 20 feet, which means being at the front of the parking lot is closer than being at the back. And mm-hmm. being on the tree on the sidewalk is closer than both. And oh so gosh. what these drivers have figured out to do is they take a phone, they hang it in the tree right next to the building, they sync their own phone to it, and then they can park wherever they want. They can be a couple of blocks away. It doesn't matter because their phone is going to get the ping first. They can accept it, and they can basically siphon off all of the gigs before anybody who's sitting a little further back in the parking lot can get to Ugh. it. Wow. And wow. it is, I mean, it's gaming the system, and it looks really funny. There's a great picture in the article of literal smartphones hanging in trees outside of a Whole Foods somewhere. <laughs> it's so wacky. This is like the ultimate fusion of, like, futuristic, high-tech, and then complete backwards dissolution right. of dystopian. <laughs> this is cyberpunk. Yeah. We are it in is. cyberpunk. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And, of course, there's many drivers who are upset by this con, basically. Uh-huh. The driver who reported this behavior to Amazon says there's actually a middleman running most of the phones in most of these schemes. And that middleman is using a second app to then dispatch the calls they get to a set of drivers who have paid to be in on the scheme. So they're kind of uh. running their own secondary little business in there. And in fact, the one of the reasons they use multiple phones is to catch more routes, right? Because they're able to get two or three pings right in a row. But it's also to hide the behavior from Amazon because they would oh notice gosh. if everything was going to one phone, right? They would obviously, right. like, we sent you out 15 minutes ago. How can you possibly be back? They said in some cases as well, drivers join this scheme because they don't qualify to become a driver on their own. They maybe don't have a valid driver's license or they're not legally able to work. This is trickle-down desperation. Yeah, it, it totally is. Absolutely. And in fact, an anonymous source who was supposedly very aware of what's going on in this scheme reported that the middleman takes the route at $18 an hour, which is their standard rate, but then pays these unauthorized drivers only $10 an hour to complete it. So they're basically just skimming off 40% of the profits right off the top for doing nothing but sitting there and rerouting the gigs that Amazon has already routed to somebody. The source who raised this complaint claims Amazon knows about it but does nothing. He says he's emailed them. He said, look, you got to put a stop to this. It's not fair. It's not reasonable. And Amazon responded to that email saying they're going to investigate it, but they're going to be unable to divulge the outcome of their inquiry. So Mm. it was just a giant screw you. They're not going to do anything about it. Well, they also might be doing this as a way to kind of evaluate where to plug the leaks in this trickle down desperation so that they can remain being that middleman since their whole business model is basically, what are they doing? Okay, we're going to do that and we're going to do it leaner at the end. Right. Well, (laughs) if if they've now figured out that they can pay some drivers $10 an hour, I'm sure they would like to know that information too. Keep the $8 (laughs) for themselves. Keep it at Amazon. Yeah. At first, I thought you were going in an optimistic direction, Angie, and I was surprised, Aww. but then you brought it home. Right, right, right. <laughs> She's not saying anything nice about Jeff Bezos. Yeah. <laughs> well, not in this example, because, I mean, this is just something that I think we're seeing at an alarming and escalating rate. And sure. it's something that we should be genuinely worried about. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. <laughs> I'm just luring, guys. That's complaining. right. We should all be complaining in French. Mm-hmm. That's the, if we can't complain in English, it doesn't count. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to do it for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.